Hello and welcome to Basically It's Me, Stephanie. We have decided to re-release an episode from our archive that did really, really well in 2021. So have a listen. If you've listened to it already and you remember it, share it with someone who you think might enjoy it. And if you haven't listened to it, you're in for a treat. This show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to basically Happy New Year. I don't know when you're listening to this, but this is the first podcast of the new year. I don't know, maybe you've only discovered this podcast and it's 2026 and it's all over. But right now it's January 2021 and January is a cruel, cruel month. This one in particular. And because of that, I have decided that I'm going to focus this whole month on mental health. Now, you could actually focus all of your podcasts always on mental health because it's such a broad sphere, but... For these four episodes, I'm going to try to do my best to cover enough that I enough topics that I think will will really help the listeners. And so for today, I have uh, Mark Smith with me, who is just the outgoing president of the Psychology Society of Ireland. Mark, uh, will you introduce yourself because you have an alphabet after your name, and I don't want to like misrepresent you. (laughs) Yeah, no problem at all. Um, I said I'm outgoing president of PSI, but I've been a clinical psychologist working in the HSC for about 17 years and then working privately as well for about 13. So I work with my day job, I work with children and adolescents with moderate to severe mental health difficulties and then my private practice, anything and everything, anyone who, who kind of, I suppose, needs to the help of a psychologist. But we all have our own areas of kind of particular interest and maybe expertise. Mine tend to be around anxiety, trauma, social media. They would tend to be the main areas that I work in. Just on that topic, do you see social media becoming a bigger... A hu- like a much more bigger field. I mean, I'm sure when you started 17 years ago, you weren't getting many people coming to you for social media issues. No, no, it was back in the the day of Bebo. Yeah, <laughs> back back then. Someone won't give me their like. What well, was it? No, you could give someone your love for the day on Bebo. It was a really interesting thing is that people don't come to me because of social media. Right. So we we see lots of stuff in the paper, newspaper in, in particular, one section of the newspaper print media that has big, huge headlines saying about social media leading to it a tsunami of mental health problems and interesting you talk to psychologists on the ground they don't come to us about that they come to us for the very same reasons so social media and it's interesting more research and research coming out showing that longitudinal studies over 9-10 years showing that there is no link or certainly not as big a link as people are claiming there is between us it's still the things that impact on us are still about relationships so even if people are experiencing say bullying on, on, on social media Bullying is the issue not social media it's it is where it's happening and you know what, even, it's not even about where it's happening, it's still about the people who are doing it. So when you talk to teenagers who are being cyberbullied, it's still about the person who's doing it to me. The the social media is the medium by which it's happening, but the hurt that's caused right. is still about the person. And if you talk to them about the difference between, say, cyberbullying and bullying that occurs on the in school, it's still the one in, in real life that hurts more. Yeah. Because it's the real person. So they can they can somewhat differentiate when it comes to cyber versus real world. And real world hurts them a hell of a lot more. It always does, doesn't mm. it? God, I'm so glad that I didn't have social media in school. But equally, school was pretty traumatic anyway. But we're not going to go down <laughs> that into Stephanie's early traumas. Um, what I want to talk to you about today is what is... So you're a clinical psychologist. Yeah. I want to know, to help the listeners, what is therapy? What is a psychologist, a psychotherapist, a therapist, a counsellor? Who are they? And... Does everyone need one and how to pick one? And can you just help us on our journey to deciding whether or not we need this? Because I think everyone's feeling a certain... So we all have 
And this is something that I kind of say a lot, which is that we all have mental health, which is the same as we all have physical health. And at different times in our lives, our mental health oscillates up and down that spectrum. Sometimes it's good, sometimes it's bad. Same way as your physical health. Sometimes you have a chest infection, sometimes you're fine. But I think because we're now living through a crisis, we all have this sort of low level, maybe high level anxiety that's running through all of us. And there is the things that we use to cope have been taken away. Our, our, our connection, our community, our yoga, our gyms, our pubs, our drinking, it's all been taken away and we're kind of left raw looking for something. And people are coming to me being like, I think I need a therapist, but I don't know how to pick one. And I do wish that there was some kind of Tinder for therapy. But imagine, like, how do you pick one and how do you know? Because there's an awful lot of people, particularly on social media, claiming that they are therapists or that they can help you with wellness. What should you be looking for? How many hours have we got this morning? I mean, you've got about, (laughs) (laughs) I'll start the clock. So I I think to answer your first question about, you know, do we do we all need to see a psychologist? No. Um, and, and especially around what you, the point you made around the fact that we're all feeling anxious. Psychologists are too, by the way, about what's happening at the moment. But what we don't want to do is get into a situation where we pathologize or make a clinical issue out of normal feelings. Right. So to feel anxious in a time of a global pandemic when everybody's a potential contaminator, when people are dying, that's how you're supposed to feel. So okay. what we really don't want to do is invalidate and, and tell people that you need to come talk to someone about what feelings are normal. Okay. So that, that's a really, really important thing. So what's the threshold for when, it, when it's not normal? I suppose there's two things you're going to look at. One is how long it's been going on. And that's again difficult in a global pandemic that's been going on for a year. Yeah. But in other circumstances, if that feeling of anxiety is, if say a particular anxiety, if it's lasting all the time, if you never get a break from it and it's lasting for an extended period, then you think, okay, actually, hang on, I'm not actually getting any respite from this. My thoughts feel like they're out of control. I'm getting loads and loads of what if catastrophic type type thoughts that never stop and I'm feeling constantly on edge. That's happening for weeks and weeks and weeks. The second piece would be that when it's getting in the way of doing everyday things that we think we would normally be able to do. So... In, in a normal world where there's a party coming up where we can't go to school or there's a talk we're supposed to give in work and we, we kind of call in sick because we're just too anxious to do it. Or with lots of people that I would see kind of going into a shop and ordering a coffee um, right, right. or making a phone call or ordering a, a takeaway on a Friday night becomes too anxiety provoking um, because of the fear of oh, what would people think of me? I will make a mess of it. Someone will laugh at me. It will make me feel worse about myself. So in those kind of situations, what people do is they engage in things called safety behaviours, which, yes. which is pulling back. So I'll, I'll avoid doing it. And what happens is that they, they get a sense of relief from the, from the anxiety they've experienced and they convince themselves that I've prevented something bad from happening. So, so they feel safer psychologically. From not doing the thing. From not doing it. And they think that they prevented something bad from happening. But ironically, what they've done is actually maintained their anxiety because they've, they felt that initial relief. But really, the thing was, was not really likely to happen. There's a possibility of it. So yeah. what anxiety does is it magnifies the possibility of the bad thing happening. It's so th- that you can't tell yourself this isn't going to happen. You can't rationalise yourself out of it. Well, see, that's the thing about anxiety. That most of the things that we're, we're afraid of are theoretically possible. Yes, okay. So reassurance doesn't work. So we're really good at this in Ireland. We'll say that, should it be grand? It'll, yeah. You know, it'll be all right. It'll be grand. And that, that doesn't work with someone who's anxious for, for two reasons. One, almost everything they're anxious about is possible just very remote. The second thing is it doesn't feel granted them. So while they're thinking about the catastrophic thing, their heart is pounding, they're short of breath, their muscles are tense. They don't feel grand. And there's actually nothing more upsetting and frustrating than someone telling you you're grand. Just listening to you there, when I 
I suffer with anxiety and when I realised that I needed to get help for it the first time it was because I couldn't open certain emails. I was too afraid to open the emails. I was too afraid to check my online banking. I just couldn't do it. And yeah, I would engage in safety behaviours, which was that I wouldn't, like, I wouldn't charge my laptop. I would forget my laptop. But I convinced myself that, like, oh, I didn't mean to forget this thing. Yeah. Anyway, so then I started to get help for it. But when people would say, it's grand, sure, you've nothing to worry about. It's going to be fine. You're, you're, you couldn't be sad. You're hilarious. You feel so unseen. Like, you feel, mm. like, absolutely invisible. Yeah, and the most important thing when in therapy or like with anxiety is to help the person feel like they're understood, that somebody gets it. But that's what I'm asked. So if you go to therapy, because so how if you say the things that are, and now actually I'm I'm noticing something in myself here that I have to acknowledge. Um, I have had a very very recent experience. I have to be prudent here because I know there are listeners. Experience with therapy that did not. Um, no, I'm not going to be objective. That may, left me feeling sort of um, a bit rejected, a bit let down, a bit hurt because of the sort of therapeutic alliance and how now I'm not going to go into it mm. and there was nothing wrong on either end. But I can notice myself, that part of me that feels like really hurt by that experience is in the room now and is like, I'm going to undermine therapy for everyone. And I'm if you see that part of me coming up, please name it because I want people to know the value of therapy and how it has helped me hugely in my life. But this very recent experience wasn't particularly great for me. And just that part of me that's trying to undermine therapy is here. So what I was going to ask you is, if you say like all the things that people are anxious about very often are possible, then how do you help them? Because I think what people want is to be reassured. But if you can't reassure something that something's objectively not going to happen, it can be very difficult to manage anxiety. Sure. And I think what, what I try to do with people is to, to go to the worst case scenario. Okay. So part of supporting people with anxiety is actually making them anxious in a very controlled way that they can manage that doesn't overwhelm them. So that if we go to the worst possible case scenario, then what do we do? So anxiety only gives us one possible way of managing, which is avoid, escape, get get away from it. Yes. But how do we get away from our own internal feelings? So if we're anxious about something, we move from one corner of the room to the other, you bring the anxiety with you. Yes. So it's about going, okay, if this happens, then what are the options available to us? They may not always be the, the best options or the options that we want, but they're still options. So it's just to show someone that there is a way, like, <laughs> I'm afraid the house is going to go on fire. Yeah. Okay, what would you do? I, exactly. w- I would run away and I would lose all of my things. And then what would happen? I- I'd get more things eventually. Okay. Yeah, so you and go so- through the different scenarios that, that, that would, in this scenario, so people worry about things like fires or burglaries or car crashes or a loved one dying. And in this scenario then, what would we do? Well, we would feel very sad. And here's the other things that we would we would think about and manage. But maybe just to come back to that piece you were saying about kind of therapy and the experiences of it. What we know is that 50% of the potential improvement that will come through therapy is through the fit, the relationship. Okay. And therapy is all about relationships. So how do you find a relationship that works? And by the way, my experience, I would recommend if people came to me and had issues that I had, I would recommend them go to this person. Like she was very, very brilliant. I am just a lot. And I think it was my issue. But how do you find... Because obviously there's a cost as well. It's expensive to go to therapy. So you can't be like forking out lots of money to go on all these initial dates with people to try and find your match. And also if you're someone who has maybe interpersonal issues, you might be kind of oppositional to everyone because going to therapy, because that opposition is a protection against what therapy is, which is being in a very vulnerable position, which we don't like to be in. Yeah. 
Yeah, and, and I suppose maybe just from the way I do it mm-hmm. is that when someone would come to me that they come to the first session with no expectations of that there would be a second. Okay, so and you end, would say that to them like on the first call or in the uh, first... At the first time I meet them is that, look, we'll come, we'll have a chat, we'll, we'll suss each other out and we'll see if we're the right, we're the right fit. And at the end of that first session, I would say to them now, you go away and you have a think. And if you've, you've a couple of days and you have a think of, do you think this might work for, for me and you in terms of the fit and how I approach things? I can be quite direct in how I work with people. Yes. That suits a lot of people. Sometimes it doesn't. And that's okay. Because it's, it's more important that the fit is right for them. Rather than, than it's right for you. Yeah. yeah. Now, the only time it might not be right for me would be that if I was concerned that working kind of on my own, that the level might be risk that the person was presenting with was too much for someone on, on a primary level as an individual and they might need more team-based supports. So I will say that to them too. Like you'd need more than one person in a room or? Yeah, that you might need kind of a team. So if it was a young person that they might need cams or if it was an adult that they might need adult-based services so that they need okay. a higher level of support than I can provide as an individual. So okay. that would be the only reason for me that the fit might not be right or... If, say, for example, they had a really specific type of difficulty that I don't have enough expertise in. Okay. I'm not going to sit there and bluff them through it, especially, as you said, they're paying for it. Yeah. So, so But in that case, you wouldn't just say, no, you'd kind of direct them somewhere else. Or Yeah, luckily enough that psychology is a, is a small enough world and I have lots of colleagues that I know their areas of kind of expertise and interest and say, look, I can see where you're coming from. That's definitely an issue that, that you need support with. But actually, I know this person who knows this way better than I do. So the person goes away for a few days and they have a think about, and what are they thinking on? Is it just like, did I enjoy being in the room there with him? Or do I feel like he knows me? Do I? Because I think that sometimes we can think, oh, I don't like the look of him or yeah. his, that room, I, I don't like, I wonder, does he, is he married? Does he have children? Does he understand where I'm coming from? Because I think a lot of people feel that in order for someone to help them, they have to have had some sort of lived experience of the thing that is the issue. Sure. Is that correct? Like if, you know, if I'm dealing with a breakup, let's say, or the breakup of a marriage, that I don't want to be seeing a 21-year-old therapist who has never been in in a relationship difficulty. Now, that's my own perception of what training and experience bring. I, I think the the two things that people need to think about afterwards when they, when they have that period of reflection about is the fit right is, does it feel safe, psychologically safe for me? And does this person get me? Is there the possibility that... I would feel understood and can they give me some sense of hope that, that you know, they can help me find a way through these difficulties that I'm experiencing. So they'd be the things that I'd be kind of thinking they would they would be reflecting on. And is there a chance then when they come back after those few days, or I say they ring you and they say, look, Mark, I had a really nice experience with you and I'd like to continue. Yeah. You say, OK, cool, we'll do Thursdays at 11. And they come in. Down the line, they feel actually I was wrong. My initial gut reaction was wrong and now it's... Now it, it's not working. Yeah. Like, does that happen? It it does. It can be hard for people to yeah. say it. Um, <laughs> and, and sometimes I might get a sense of that and, and I'll open that conversation for them and say, look, I could be wrong here, but I'm getting a sense maybe that you might be thinking this is not really the right fit or not working for you. Is there a possibility that's happening? If it is, that's okay. You know, I'm going to open that up for you because I think you need to acknowledge that it would be an awkward conversation for someone to start because yeah. there is a, there's a power imbalance when it comes to therapy. Because the person, as you said, is, is kind of feeling vulnerable. Yeah. And they're coming to you looking for help. So you have, there's, there's a great responsibility in doing this work that you're holding that person's vulnerability. You're, you're creating a space where, where they have the potential to be hurt. Yes. So you, we have to be really mindful of that responsibility that we carry mm-hmm. and to be respectful of it. Um, so it's, it's, it's a tricky, like it's a, it's a tight rope that you're walking. Um, but, but once you're mindful of, of that responsibility, and I think I spoke about this before, that 
one of the things that I feel about my job is that that it's it's a privilege to to do what we do that that people carry around and particularly with trauma. Um, I've worked in that area for for a couple of years now. And do you want to just say a little bit more for listeners about what that is specifically, or which piece? Like trauma, like in ge- like general trauma, sexual trauma, childhood trauma, physical. I, I suppose all of those traumas, that, and you're right, that could be could be trauma from a, a bereavement or a suicide or sexual abuse or physical abuse or or anything that that leaves that person feeling kind of very overwhelmed, scarred. I suppose that yeah. that really fearful of the world around them. And, and the main piece that I see with trauma is just this understandable terror of, of being hurt again. Yeah. Um, and, and you have to be really careful with the pacing with trauma to make sure that you, you don't want to just dive in there and, and open things up and yeah. leave the person feeling kind of quite quite scarred. So in the beginning, I think I will acknowledge with people that I'm not going to go into the big, deep, heavy stuff the first time I meet you. It just wouldn't be fair, especially if that fit is not right. Yeah. That you need time to to get to know me and I did a, a talk a few years ago with a group of psychologists, social workers, psychotherapists, psychiatrists and, and the opening slide was trust me I'm a psychologist. There's lots of nods and staging and whatever. And then the second slide was why the hell should you? Yeah. Because trust has to be earned and yeah. especially with, with teenagers I will name that for them in the first session. Yeah. You know it is weird coming off the street with the expectation that you're going to talk to a random stranger and I am a stranger. But the implicit expectation is you will trust me because of my job title. Yes, and that shouldn't be implicit. No, it has, it has it to be has earned. To be so I will encourage them to, to ask questions. What do you want to know about me? Like, like you said, like about, you know, are you married? Do you have kids? Where are you from? What, what do you like? And they don't, they don't know that they're allowed to ask those questions. But are you allowed to ask those questions? Of course you are. Now, the person doesn't know what to answer. But if there's an area that I don't want to answer, and I don't think I can think of one that I haven't answered yet. But of course, why not? Because it's. A, I think there's a feeling, or maybe it's something that Hollywood has given me. But it's certainly something that even in my therapy, I have always sort of embodied, which is that like there is a barrier. Like I don't want to or shouldn't know too much about this person. You know, like their rooms are always pretty bland. The artwork is always pretty unremarkable. They don't have like pictures of their family. Like it's not. They're not bringing themselves as a whole person. They should, I suppose, bring their themselves and their whole experience. But for you to know that, the more detail you know about them, the more barriers there might be to connection, no? I, I think in, in any relationship, be that a personal one or a therapeutic one, one of the things that we do is that we we move the boundaries back and forward. We test them to find out where they are. <laughs> so, yeah, we do. So that if, if, if there's <laughs> someone asks me a question that's kind of a, a little beyond that boundary, I go, oh, don't, do you know what? That one might be a little bit too far. Yeah, but but here, so so we will always find that within relationships and therapeutic relationships are similar to that. But I think it's important that that people get to know me and and part of my experiences. So part of therapy for some therapists would be using self disclosure, right? So that their own experiences of of lots of different things. So particularly, say with ch- talking to parents, I will talk about my own experiences of being a parent, okay, and how difficult and tricky that is. Because that adds to the relationship and adds to them understanding that you want, adds to yeah them feeling like you understand the position that they're in. Yeah, and and like you you mentioned earlier on about say a twenty one year old therapist, I had that earlier on in my career working with a with a parent who kind of really struggled and was trying to support them with their with their daughter, and you know the, the particular mom said to me, "So look, you just don't get it. You're not a mom, so, right? Well, I can I can never be a mom, you know. Yeah. <laughs> but but I think certainly since I've had kids, it has made that." that ability to form that kind of connection with parents a little bit easier mm-hmm. because I can talk about how, how tricky it can be and that, you know, we might have had the training and 
it's hard sometimes when I might give advice to a parent around, you know, the relationship they have with their kids and what to do and what not to do. And then being human, go home and do the exact opposite of, of the advice I've given. And you feel, you feel like a hypocrite at times. But, but I'll, I'll say that to parents, is that I know how hard it is for you. Because within therapy, you create that safe space and you have these discussions about what, what will help and what won't help. But that's only maybe 20% of the benefit that you're going to get. 80% is, is what you do outside of that room. And is that, are there different, because I have had experience of therapy where they have been very reluctant to speak, like to give, to, to give advice. So yeah. I would ask, can you help me to make this decision? And, and basically be told, no, you have all the tools you need to make that decision, which feels like a, like a huge rejection. And like, you know, it feels kind of vulnerable to ask for help and be told no. But are there different, is that just the type of therapy I was in? Like, are there ones that are more explicit and more, would counsel you and offer advice and ones that will just kind of nod at you. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm guilty of all of those. Um, yes, there will be, I think on the piece on direct advice, there'll be, there'll be some stuff that's, that's very straightforward and there'll be other times where, so what you're trying to do is to not get into a position where the person, you don't undermine their confidence or independence in themselves to make decisions. So you're trying to guard against I suppose dependency right okay where, where the person becomes dependent on you to make the decisions for them yes but part of what we're doing is trying to maybe create a a mature dependency in, mm-hmm. initially and then progress that person towards their own independence okay so there may be times where yes you might give a little bit more direction but then as therapy progresses you pull back a little bit because you're trying to kind of provide scaffolding and so I guess what you're trying to do is almost make yourself obsolete like you're trying to get to a point where they don't really need you anymore exactly exactly that that's that's success where the person feels you know what I, I can do this by myself and how long generally like that's it no, this is, <laughs> how long is a piece of string i can mark? see where this is going yeah um because okay. i think there's a there's a there's a fear with people that this is a financial investment that might strain them which yeah. they are willing to invest in for a Substantial for for a period of time, but they're not sure. It's a therapist isn't going to tell you we're going to do this for ten weeks, and because of that, this money is going out, and you're like, I'm I need to be making progress quickly because I can't afford this. Sure. And that if you knew how long can we do this for, how long will work, how long do I need that will be helpful. So that depends on how early you know a person in terms of early intervention, okay, um, and also the level of difficulties that are there and how much it's impacting on a person's life. So for what's kind of described as mild difficulties mm-hmm. um, that are maybe recent onset that are not really impacting hugely in the person's life, what they would find is kind of maybe six to eight sessions okay. should get the kind of, help the person to achieve the goals that they are. For more moderate difficulties, you're looking at maybe more 15 to 20 sessions yeah. um, and more severe would be kind of 30 plus. But at those levels, you're working with a team. Okay. So you shouldn't be paying for those because it should be within community-based services. Okay. All right. Okay. And so let's talk about that then. So if you feel like you have severe, like that you need help, what are the supports available to you within your community? Yeah. So primarily for anything with more moderate to severe difficulties, the primary route to access those services would be through your GP. Okay. So So you would present to your doctor and say, I'm having an awful lot of trouble with, I don't know, like I, I feel like I can't 
get up in the morning or whatever your symptoms are, you present your GP and is it the GP who says this is moderate, this is mild, this is severe? Yeah, they will do that initial kind of triaging and and kind of think, okay, within the kind of community around here, where do I think might be the best place to to make that referral on to? So if it was more mild difficulties, it could be primary care psychology, it could be jigsaw services. Um, What's jigsaw? Jigsaw is a youth mental health um, support that are kind of around the country that will provide that primary level intervention. Um, for, for young people up to the age of 24. Great. Um, but for more moderate difficulties, then it would be your, your CAMS for under 18s or adult-based services. CAMS is child and, and adult mental, mental health. health yeah, so that'll be a team that will have psychology, psychiatry, social work, uh, speech and language therapy, nursing. Right. And they would find a team-based support um, in the same way that adult would do that for over 18s. Adult is the name of the... Adult mental health services. Oh, yeah. oh just adult. Yeah, so the, okay. so the equivalent starts from 18 upwards. And um, just going back then, so... A psych- will a psychologist treat you in the same way that a psychotherapist or someone who calls themselves a counsellor will see you? Um, no. So we've got different training routes. Do you want to just speak a little bit to that? Sure. Um, and we get this a lot between kind of psychology, psychiatry, psychotherapy. What's the difference between between all of us? And yeah. I think for most people, they just they just want to get help and they're not really sure, as you said, where is the, the right route to go down. So for, for psychology, we do a, an undergraduate degree first, usually a master's, and then a three-year doctorate in clinical counselling or educational psychology. That kind of supports you to, to do that work. So you've been in a, like in third-level education for seven years before... Yeah, on average... it from, all those letters. <laughs> yeah. On average, from start to finish, from undergrad to qualifying takes about 10 years on average. So it, it takes takes quite a while. So it's a long journey to And are you practising in that time? You're practising from... Usually before training, people will get an assistant psychologist post um, right. where you're working with a qualified psychologist. Then three years during training, you, you will be going on placements, working directly with people under supervision. Yeah. And then once you're qualified, then you will be, you'll be still getting supervised. But yeah, you'll be, you'll be working after the 10 years. Okay. So that's psychologists. That's psychologists. Um, now, there's a, psychology is a very broad church. We also have kind of occupational psychologists who are business, you know, work in business environments. We have people who work with sports psychology, forensic psychology. So it's it's a very... Oh, it's very broad. It's it's very, very broad. But, but I just mean in comparison to psychotherapy. Yeah. And even within that, there, psychotherapy would have lots of branches within that too. So like earlier on, you were talking about different methodologies. They will have different branches of psychotherapy. So the ones that we've probably heard a lot are CBT, which is cognitive behavioural therapy. Yeah, so CBT wouldn't necessarily just be for kind of counsellors and psychotherapists. Lots of practitioners in mental health will use CBT. Okay. So that could be a social worker, OT, a psychologist, a counsellor, a therapist. That's one of the, the ways that you would support a person okay. um, as one of the... So it's a toolkit that you all can use. Most people, well, if they've been trained in it, obviously, right, yeah, yeah it's, it's one of the things that you use, particularly for people with that struggle with anxiety or depression to be one of the, the frontline kind of types of treatment that you will use. And is that something that like on that first call when you're trying to connect with a therapist, would you ask them like, what, what are you, what are you trained in to do? Like, are you going to be doing CBT with me? Are we going to be doing painting are you yeah. going to be showing me blobs like, and you know what's happening it's, it's a great question and I don't get asked enough um, right. people just they they look for an appointment they don't ask about your qualifications they don't ask about your background your expertise what you're trained in what modalities you use um, and I, I'm encouraging people to do it but they just don't do it enough because I guess they don't know like if I say to you okay Mark um, hi I'd like to make an appointment what, what's your training and what modalities do you use yeah so and, answer but, that yeah but that's not but I don't know Like I'm asking you to answer it because I bet you I won't know what it means so I won't know how to make sense of the answer not to mind sense of the question and I have to make, I have to be cognizant of that that I know this information but even if I spew it out in the way that, that you know well all those letters like you said that's not going to mean anything to people okay so I will explain here's uh, Knowing that they haven't 
and we, we, maybe looked it up or asked the question, I will tell them. Okay. And say, here's who I am. Here's how long I've been working. Here's the areas I work in. Here's the type of work that I do. Here's how I approach it. Here's how I manage confidentiality. Um, here's how I manage all the different ways that we do these things. So it's laid out for the person from the very beginning. Right. So you should be asking, you should be asking your clinician, no matter what they are, what, yeah, like who they are, what their experience is, where they, what they've trained in. Is this your area and how do you, how do you approach it? How would you approach someone who struggles with anxiety? What normally would you do? Okay. And it's, it's, it's not even perfectly okay to ask that question. I think people should be. Yeah. So I guess it just feels like if you're calling a therapist, you have to assume that someone is in a vulnerable position already. Yeah. And so then it becomes quite overwhelming. Well, I'm just speaking from my experience to be like, it's like beggars can't be choosers. Like you're really looking for help. And so in order to to get into, to swing the power balance to be like, now tell me about yourself and I might choose you. Which, which is hard. It feels like, like you a said, psychological jump. That's it, too no, much. It is. And I think the other piece maybe is that there is such uh, an excess demand out there that if you find someone, it's like, well, I'm not going to ask them these questions because at least I finally found someone. Yes, okay. Because there's not enough people to, to do this work. So you're right. It is hard to kind of ask those questions, but... It's important as well where we can to make informed choices and to feel kind of safe and understood and, and to, to ask that if, if we can. Because there's a difficulty, particularly with, with psychology and, and actually psychotherapy counselling, it hasn't come in either. So we haven't come under the, the body yet of KORU, which is the regulatory body. Okay. So at the moment, unfortunately, anybody, you could do a weekend course in psychology and set up next Monday as a psychologist. Excuse me? Yeah. Nobody can stop you. So I could do... a. But you're a doctor of psychology. Okay, so I wouldn't be a doctor of psychology. But, but you I can, the, the term psychologist isn't protected as of yet. Now, there's a process at the moment. It just hasn't happened yet. Oh, wow. So you have to be very careful. You have to be very careful. It's like personal trainers. They're popping up everywhere. Yes. So with any profession, you're going to have to check to make sure, are you regulated? Are you qualified to do the job that you say you were to do? So the, the title as of yet, isn't. it will be. And, and we're really looking forward to when it's protected because it, at the moment, it's there is the possibility of someone could go to someone who isn't qualified to do that work. That's so really it's dangerous. really important. Now, lots of our colleagues in, in speech and language therapy and social work and OT have been regulated. We've taken a little bit longer, but, okay. but it's really important that people are clear that they're qualified to do the work that they say they can do. And by so what you're looking for is some sort of like PSI accreditation or I... What? Well, with, PS, with psychology in particular, so PSI is the representative body and anyone, right. anyone who would be a member would have gone through... Um, the basic undergrad they would have kind of graduate status okay and then within that we have kind of the chartered section of our website which would have people who will go through kind of extra levels to make sure that they've reached that standard to, to be who they are oh right okay so that's very important and so with psychotherapy and counselling then is that less academic and more like have are those people is there some people who should be going to different it's uh, uh, it's, it's not that it's it's Better or worse, it's just a different pathway. Okay. Um, counselors and psychotherapists don't tend to work in, in the HSE. Um, I'm not sure that's always necessarily a good thing. I think there's room for those, but we haven't got to, got to that part yet. But they can provide really useful um, and helpful skills as well. Like what is a counsellor? It's, it's a different training route. So they will do kind of under the, they have their own regulatory bodies like IACP, um, where they will provide specific kind of counselling skills to work with people um, it would tend to be more at kind of a, a primary level milder level of difficulties not in all cases but in some Yeah. Um, but it 
again, it's still going to come back to the fit, irrespective of whether it's a counsellor, psychotherapist, counselling psychologist, clinical psychologist, the fit has to be right. Um, and, it's but, the fit that, uh, you keep coming back to the fit and it's obviously crucial because that 50% of the progress that you're going to make is going to come down to the fit. But it is a sort of a, there's an awful lot, like for me, that fit it's difficult to know what is what is attachment, what is just I want yeah. you to like me, um, I want to feel si- like I have a thing where I want everyone to like me. I don't like not being liked. It really upsets me. Yeah. And so for me to go in with a critical eye and say I was to have 10 sessions with 10 different therapists, I would want them all to like me. I would want I would. And, and so I would be placing myself in I like all of these people. <laughs> If yeah. you are even homeopathically nice to me in my direction, you're in. So it's really hard for people to to know that fit because I do think that like attachment and bonding and all Previous of those experiences issues, and relationships that we we all bring into it. Yeah, and, and but that that's that's what happens within kind of within therapy is that it's not just the two people in the room; it's lots of people in the room because it's the other relationships that we've had that we've brought into the dynamic between the therapist and the person that that they're working with. Taking a break from the show to tell you about our sponsor, HumdingerMortgages.ie, your new gaff without the faff. Humdinger are an award-winning mortgage brokerage and they specialise in finding the right mortgage for you. The best part is that you deal with the broker and they deal with every major bank in the Irish market so you don't have to trawl around talking to loads of people. They also make the best recommendation on what's the best way to proceed for you specifically and they stay at your side to help you at every step of the way from application to drawing down your mortgage. They're in the mortgage business, right? Not the application business. They have absolutely no interest in putting you through the ringer and getting you to fill out loads of forms without getting a mortgage at the end. And they're really honest from the get-go about what the problems might be with your application. But then they don't abandon you. They will stay by your side and give you the best advice on how to make sure that you are successful the next time you apply. They specialise in helping first-time buyers, people looking to trade up and people like me who are looking to save ourselves some money by switching our mortgage for a better rate. And like for me, I'm going to switch my mortgage. I'm working with Humdinger because like a reduction of even 0.5% on my mortgage rate can save me like 30 grand in interest over the whole term of my mortgage. Mortgages are the biggest financial decision you are ever going to make. So take advantage of speaking to experts and go to humdingermortgages.ie to begin your journey. And what if the therapist then, like it must be hard for you, like say you have all of the people in your life and the past experiences and say someone who's quite like me was in your life at one point and was awful to you and are left to really, you know, really hurt you. And I come in and, and I think we're a great fit. So we're working away grand, but yeah. I keep, you keep remembering things because I'm reminding you of stuff. Do you have a therapist? Like, do you have ongoing ways of managing yourself in the room? So that I'm still getting the best experience that I can get. Yeah, that's that's a really important point. So the, that what you're touching on is issues around kind of transference and countertransference, which are kind of our other relationships that we bring in that impact on on how we are with each other and remembering. Yes. So as the client, if I'm say I am transferring, say my issues with my father onto you, yeah. that's transference. And if you're transferring stuff with your daughter onto me, then it, that's countertransference. Exactly, exactly. So for for the vast majority of us, we would engage in regular supervision. So I would have supervision once a month with someone where I will go and talk about the work that I've done and, and the issues that are coming up for And what me. kind of stuff comes up in those sessions? Um, just as well for me checking in, making sure that I'm kind of on the right pathway or thinking I'm on the right pathway. Um, sometimes things around worry that I have for particular clients that I'm working with. Um, because at the end of the day, we, we, we do take this stuff home with us at yeah. times. We try not to. You know, it's not good for us, but we're human too. So 
depending on, on the kind of difficulties that you're working with. And the stuff that I take home the most, I suppose, would be worry around suicide. That about how diff- vulnerable your client is and what they might do. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah. that that's a challenge. And that you know, the approach that you're taking, trying to make sure that you're doing the best that you can to get the the best outcome they can, but but more importantly, to keep people safe. Mm-hmm. Um, and that that is something that it's not easy to sit with. But I suppose based on the work that I do, it's something that I've accepted is a risk in what I do. Yeah, but but it's not easy. So you process that stuff um, and you make sure that the direction you're heading is as free as it can be from all of your own issues and, and keeping those as, as separate as they can while also acknowledging that you're part of the relationship and you're part of what's going on there. So, And if something is coming up in in the interpersonal, like in the, so there's you and all your stuff, me and all my stuff, and then this third thing that we have together, which is our therapeutic alliance. Yeah. Do you name that? Like, obviously you're not going to be like, I'm experiencing some counter-transference here. I wouldn't name it like that, but I would say, look, is there something going on here? What there seems to be kind of a you seem to be annoyed at me, or right, have okay. I you know have I have I said something here that's kind of have I got it wrong? Yeah, because um, I think it's important to be to be genuine as well, and to be able to because if there is a rupture, like if you do have a yeah. falling out, like it's kind of important, I guess, to name it. Oh, absolutely, because what's re- what's what's I think what's even more important not just to name it, but to find a way to if you can to do a repair. Yeah, which is really because, you know, what I was saying at the start, like if you if you leave a therapy feeling that it hasn't been repaired, it's just reminding you of all the previous times in your life that things haven't been repaired. And to have a a working example of a rupture that is repaired is, is a really useful template to go away with, to be like, actually, now I know that things can be repaired. And when you don't get that, that's why I'm left feeling like hurt and, 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 and abandoned and all those things. So it's. It seems like a really important thing, but probably really uncomfortable in the room in the moment. It's certainly early in my career, it was very uncomfortable. Yeah. Because I think for me, certainly as a young early therapist, I had that similar feeling that you had was that all my clients had to like me. Yeah. You know, if it was to be successful, that they all had to like me. But as I kind of progressed, I realized that there's times where some of them don't and I have to say things that will result in them not liking me. Yeah. But sometimes they need to be said. So like I was saying, I could be kind of direct in things. But you also have to understand, I think, that for the client say I'm the client and I don't like you yeah. and I am explicit that I don't like you yeah. but you still treat me that's a huge that's a huge gift you're giving the client being like it's okay for you to not like someone and for them to still respect you and work with you and do you know yeah. what I mean? No no I do and, and it was only kind of last year I think I started reflecting on that really kind of deeply and actually ended up writing a blog about it that it's looking back on a couple of different clients and kind of over a couple of years wondering what did I actually do? Yeah. Did, did I do anything? Because what it felt like was firefighting every week, arguments and firefighting and worry and risk and going, what did I do? I don't, I don't really know if I did anything. And then I realised I did. I just stuck with them. Yeah. That they threw a lot of stuff at me. Um, and that no matter what they threw at me, I just stayed with them. I was like, you're not pushing me away. I'm not going anywhere. You know, if you choose to leave, okay, be of your own direction, but I'm going to be here as long as you need me to be here. Yeah. And that's that piece, that it's that journey that you stay with the person. Because, and that's huge. Because when you don't get that, it feels awful. Yeah, yeah, and it's you know it's it's not pleasant being mm-hmm. being on the the receiving end of. I can imagine, but understanding maybe what might be behind that, I think, is important. Yeah, and that if you have been hurt and you've experienced rejection, there is time sometimes in that dynamic where the person will will maybe have an assumption or presumption that look, this person is going to reject me anyway, so I'm going to you know 
throw a few curveballs in here and yeah. see, pr- prove that this is going to happen. And then when it doesn't, they go, oh, I, I, you know, I, I gave my best shot and they're still sticking with me. What, yeah. what, what's that about? What's that about? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe all of my preconceived ideas about life are wrong. Yeah, and it's just, you know, stick, sticking with them and, and seeing that, you know, they might have experienced rejection and that, you know, you will stick with them whatever they're going to throw at you. And it's that's the relationship piece. It's showing that that I'm not going to be another person who's going to set out to hurt you. I might not always get it right. And I yeah. will acknowledge that. And if I get something wrong, I'll hold my hands up and go, look, I kind of misjudged that. I had this idea and it, and it wasn't right. Yeah, that's a huge thing for, I guess, for a, a clinician, for a medical professional, I guess, to say like, look, I misjudged this and I'm I, I'm sorry. And that's the, that's the repair. It's a showing that, you know, again, this is a real relationship, but it's it's a therapeutic one. Yeah. But in relationships, nobody is ever going to get everything right. And that's really hard as well, I think, for some people to accept that, like, your therapist is also a human and they make mistakes because we want people, we want someone to be infallible. You know, we want yeah. just like, no, you have to have all the answers. And I know for sure that I, I, I'm often looking for the person who has the answer. Um, and it's frustrating when you're like, just tell me what to do because complete submission would be lovely, particularly in a pandemic when you're like, <laughs> please, can someone just tell me that everything will be OK? And, and, and the struggle to accept that no one has that answer is, is, is tough. I think that's what people are struggling with at the moment. There's just that uncertainty. Yeah. And I, I think for me, the, the, the best kind of therapeutic experiences I've had with people is, is when they're collaborative. Mm-hmm. Where, look, I might not have all the answers, but between the two of us, we'll have a pretty good shot at finding something out. Yeah. And and that's, that I think sits easier with me than this kind of expert sitting on a pedestal, kind of, I have all the answers and I'm going to save you kind of approach. Um, yeah, which I think might not always be the, and I'm just reflecting on my own experience as well, isn't necessarily where the therapist puts themselves, but rather where the client puts the therapist. Absolutely, yeah. Well, it can be both. Yes. It can be both depending on your approach. But but for me, that, that piece of, I'm going to come down and we're going to work on this together. And there's a, an approach for assessing and managing kind of the assessment of suicide right. called, called the Collaborative Assessment and Management of Suicide, the CAMS model. I really, really like it because when you're doing the assessment now in a... What is it, to assess someone's likelihood to commit suicide? To die, yeah. Okay. Um, but as part of the protocol um, in a non-COVID world, you come over and you sit beside the person. Right. And you, you collaboratively fill in the form together. But even the symbolic piece of we're going to sit together yeah. and we're going to look at it from the same perspective again, takes you away from that kind of expert-led, you will tell me your problems and I will tell you your answers. And what, like, is there, if the person is likely to commit suicide, they are not going to sit next to you? Is there, like, checklists that happen on that then? It, it, there is a form that you fill out and what's nice about it is that one of the pages, the person themselves fills out and right, then you fill okay. the rest of it between them and you come to a collaborative um, conclusion as to what that level of risk is and then a collaborative plan around how to manage that. So you're working with that person. But again, you're, you're sitting beside them. I think that's mm-hmm. the important piece is I'm, I'm sitting with you with this. You have to kind of wonder about how much mental health is being impacted by this virus in little things like that where like you literally now cannot sit next to that person when you're doing that. Like, and not even just sit, sit next to them, you have to sit at least more than two metres away from them like, yeah. through face masks. So you're, you're losing kind of some of the, the subtle kind of reassurances that you can give, so the subtle connections, the ways that we we communicate without words, which mm-hmm. is which can be really powerful in a room. Do you think that there is a that there is a plan in place for dealing with the mass mental health issue, like the you know accumulative and uh, general PTSD we're all going to have when this is over uh, on the government level? 
I would, <laughs> you're I, smiling. <laughs> yeah, I. You would. You would have to hope so. Yeah. Um. I don't know what it is if there is, but you would have to hope so because certainly within within PSI we've been kind of saying this for quite some time that yeah. the, you know and it, it's not even about I think from my point of view and it's not even what's to come it's what's already arrived. Mm-hmm. Um, so for the past maybe four months, both privately and publicly, there's been an exponential increase in the number of people seeking help. People are very very distressed. They've, they need they need help now, um, and it doesn't feel like the resources are there to meet that need. Is the resources the money or, or, or literally the, like the, the individuals who are trained to give the service? Uh, both. Right. So we've, we, you know, we've known for years that the mental health budget is only 5 to 6% of what it should be. It should be between 10 to 12%. Yes. So we've a long way to go to do that. And we don't have enough bums on seats. We need more people that are, that are there and available to listen and to support. Yeah. God, it's, it's just kind of a really sobering thought when you think of... Like this is a health crisis, but there's there's this kind of background mental health crisis. I was listening yesterday to um, a woman from St. James's Hospital talking about the trauma of COVID patients who survive, but have had that experience of not being able to draw breath. Yeah. And as an asthmatic, like it's a really traumatising experience when you cannot get your breath. And, you know, even just things like that, it's not just people who have lost people, it's people who have survived who now have like survivor's trauma and stuff. It's There's just going to be so many... There is, but you know what's happening? I think it's important to go back and do the very first thing that we talked about. Does everyone need to see psychologists to know? No, but so everyone needs to have people. We need, we need people. So, you know, we're talking earlier about Jigsaw, about that, that service, and, yeah. and they had a campaign and a, a hashtag that has really just stuck with me about for young people, but I think it's it's for everybody. And, and it was about one good adult. Yes. As one good person. So that we, again, we'll come back to relationships, that there is such power and healing in having a person who gets us. Yeah. And, and who, who understands us and who's there for us, who comes for a walk with us, who picks up the phone to us, who just listens. It doesn't have to be a psychologist to do that. No. So we don't want to, I suppose, undermine the power of having people around us who get us. And that for the vast, vast majority of people, that's enough. Just to have people acknowledge, like, this has been really trying. How are you getting on? Yeah, that, that, that's, that's healing. That, you know, they're my go-to person. And, and that's really, I suppose, what, for me, what I'm trying to do with, with people is to move them away from me. Yes. To get them back to their family, their friends, their husbands, wives, boyfriends, girlfriends, whoever it's going to be. Yeah. That they should be the people that, that, that are around you. Because it strikes me that, you know, the the greatest kind of toxin to our mental health is isolation. And physical isolation is something that is being promoted and is really necessary right now. But that doesn't mean that mental isolation is being promoted. And it's also crucial that it's not yeah, and, and I had huge issues with the, the choice of the word social distancing. Yeah. It should have been physical, physical distancing. distancing because people then cut themselves off from other people and, and we're human, as humans, we're social creatures. We need to be around people, even when we're anxious. Yeah. We, we still need them. Particularly when we're anxious. Yeah, we, we still need people around us and to, if we can, and if we're lucky enough to have people around us, mm-hmm. to, to really value the importance of that um, in terms of our mental well-being and our mental health. Um, because... I, I run groups at different times and it doesn't matter what it was for. It was for me for parenting or for anxiety or even for people who've maybe been thinking about suicide. And when you collect the the, the feedback forms at the end and you think, look, I put all this work into it. It could be a six-week group or a six-month group and you're kind of sitting back waiting for all the praise that you think is going to come for how great you were. And and you look at it and you think that and you see on the forms, what was the, the best thing out of this group? It was nothing to do with me. It was being in a room with other people who felt and thought, thought just like I think. 
Yeah. That they felt less alone with their thoughts and their feelings. That somebody else in the world thinks like me and feels like me. That's so powerful. Because you feel seen and you feel valued and you feel n- normal. Yeah, and it, and it, it, it kind of gets over this kind of piece sometimes with therapists where they think that, you know, we get it because we read it in a textbook. Yeah. But when it's sitting in a room with a person with that lived experience, they know it's not from a textbook. They know, they actually know what it feels like. It's not a platitude of, oh, I know how you feel. It's they, like this thing that I read about information and knowledge not being the same thing. Yeah. Like, you can have the information, but it doesn't really matter. Like, if, if information was all you needed, no one would ever smoke, yeah. no one would ever overeat, no one would ever cheat on anyone. But knowledge and experience, knowledge is different to information and it's connecting the information and living it and catabolizing it through your own experience that allows you to know in your body, I'm not alone. Someone else thinks like me and I'm going to be okay. Yeah. And and, and sometimes you will have therapists who will have had that lived experience as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and some will use that within their therapeutic approach to try and help that person. So as well as their professional training, the textbook knowledge that they have, they will have that lived experience. From your broad work in PSI what would you say are the like three or four biggest mental health issues right now? By far anxiety right across all age groups and that even before the pandemic so we know again from our colleagues in Jigsaw they do great research looking at at the number and types of referrals that come Um, and they brought it out through the the My World study looked at adolescent mental health and for the last five years it's been anxiety okay um, because that's a very broad church yes. of, of, of difficulties that people experience. Um, but but low mood would be one of those. Um, I think maybe an over reliance on alcohol as a coping mechanism. Yeah, which sure. would be up there, particularly particularly in Ireland. Yeah, um, which we've seen. But th- these issues don't always exist as standalone issues. Yeah. So you have the person who's here is anxious, the person who's here is maybe a bit sad, and the person who's reliant on alcohol. A lot of the time, it's it's all the same. It's all the same. We're going to do an episode on eating disorders. Fantastic. Because the, the numbers of young people in particular presenting with eating disorders over the last two years has gone through the roof. Um, it's a really big issue and an issue that is back to funding again, has not got anywhere near the attention or funding that it needs. I think that also comes down to public pressure for funding because it's yeah. eating disorders are very often a very silent, shameful thing. So yeah. you're not going to come out beating your drum being like, you need to fund eating disorders because because people aren't willing I guess or able to even some and I think sometimes people aren't even able to acknowledge that they have one because so much of diet culture is eating disorders dressed up as a healthy way of living like cutting out whole food groups disordered eating and eating disorders kind of blending into one now I think there's there's two things with eating disorders that we need to bear in mind but say the funding and, and that is that of any of the mental health difficulties that we might work with the people pretending with anorexia are the people most likely to die Wow. So there's the highest mortality rate of any... Even stif- like people who are suicidal. Yeah. yeah. Most people. Are, more more, more, more people uh, will die from anorexia than if un, suicidal. If, un, if, un, if untreated. So it's, it's one of the most challenging areas that we work in and, and needs so much more support than it actually gets. Yeah. Um, but you're right about that piece about people don't come forward and it's shameful. And even working with someone who, who, who might have anorexia is part of the battle is trying to convince them that they have. Right, okay. Because the, the power of the eating disorder thoughts will, will is in the room with you. Yes. And it's battling, it's telling that person, don't engage, don't listen to him. You yes. know, he, he's wrong, just keep doing what you're doing. Um, but again, that, that's the importance of, of early intervention. Yeah. And we know with young people, the kind of family-based approach works best. We're going to do an episode on family therapy as well. Fantastic, you're heading in all the right directions. Um, do you want to say a little bit about family therapy to tease the episode? 
I'm not trained in it, but I know that it, again, is, is under-resourced, that we need much more family therapists trained and working within the system because... It's like giving therapy to the family unit rather than the one person. Exactly. And it's it's so much more, I, I feel, helpful at times. Yeah. Because particularly for young people, they can feel scapegoated and blamed when they come into services and the parents come to tell all of the bad things about the young person who's done it and they're the cause of all of it. But we know within families that there's going to be loads of different relationships, different dynamics. And if you help and support a family, then you're helping the young person. Yeah. So, so parents and getting them involved. Because they have the support then. Exactly, exactly. And, and It's what, like that bit you were saying of like getting them to move away from you, then they have the support of their family rather than needing to come to you for support. Yeah, and, and kind of the dynamics that can occur within families can be part of the maintaining factors for what's going on. Like, speak to that a bit. So where maybe there's a perception that the young person is is being, you know, bold. Right. And it's behaviour, but maybe they're they're insecure, they feel like back to attachment that you were talking about, that, that they don't feel loved or that one sibling is preferred over another. And and those dynamics are at play yes. and impacting on that young person. So it's around trying to find a way to be supportive with the family to communicate what you're observing about those dynamics going on. Um, the other thing, I suppose, is that within that family-based work, You've got, you know, 50 minutes an hour a week with a young person. Yeah. And what you're hoping is that they will take whatever they they learn within that, that session and then transfer it into their life, into the real world. Uh-huh. That can be hard. Yes. So, at, you know, 11 o'clock on a Friday night. What was it your man said to me there, there on Tuesday? How am I supposed to manage that? Yeah. Whereas when you work with a family, you work with parents where you provide them with the skills to be able to, you know, help that person when they get distressed. That's much more effective. It's like they're all speaking a similar language then. They're speaking it, but also understanding each other's perspectives. Yes. Because, you know, one of the things that can happen with, within families is that they, they can become kind of polarised, where you have like, the parent is here, the child is here, and we, we're trying to convince each other we're right. Right. But in many cases, both are right. So I'll give you an example. Say on a Friday night disco and the 16-year-old wants to stay out till two o'clock in the morning with all her friends. Yeah. And dad is like, no, 12 o'clock. You need to come home because people will be drunk and they'll be safe, unsafe and all those things. Both of them are right. So from the 17-year-old, 16-year-old perspective. It's normal to want to do that. And I'll, you know, one of my friends will laugh at me and why am I going home early? And they'll think I'm, you know, overly strict parents. So the dad's point of view, he's right. There will be those things. Yeah. So what you're trying to see is that there's this middle path between the two where it's not about trying to convince the other that they're right, but that both, are, both perspectives are valid. So how do you find a way, to, like, who wins there? It, it's not, not about winning. It's not. It's it's not about. It. It's about being able to see, put yourself in the other person's shoes. That's fine. Like you can put yourself in the other person's shoes, but like you still have to find what time that child is coming home at. And and, like, but the first point in that is accepting the validity of the other person's point of view. And okay. once you can do that, you go, okay, I can see where you're coming from. The main point of doing that is to bring down emotion, because what happens is when we get into conflict between parents and young people, or conflict between anybody, yeah, is that we keep escalating the emotion up with the expectation that the other person is going to switch to our point of view. Right. But what doesn't happen like that. No. What happens is the emotion keeps going up and up and up and then it blows. Yes, okay. So by validating, I can see where you're coming from, automatically the level of emotion is going to come back down. But even if you're saying, no, look, this is that argumentative part of it. It's trying <laughs> to undermine you. I'm sorry. Yeah, I'm sorry. I can feel it coming out now. <laughs> sorry, you could ignore me. I'm not even going to follow up with that question. We can get to that when we talk to the family therapist. <laughs> and to my listeners, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for bringing my damage into the situation. Um, I'll get over it soon. Um, so just to finish up, for the listeners who are thinking, I'm feeling stressed. I think I need a therapist. I think I need help. Your advice to them is, one, you might not need help. Sure. Two, if you do start with your GP 
or should they do some of their own online research? You can do your own online research first. The GP would be, I suppose our GPs are, are overwhelmed as well. Yeah. <laughs> um, and but that doesn't mean if you do need them, they are they still are there. Absolutely, you're going to have them there. Or if out of hours, GP services yeah. are going to be there too. But yeah, it, it's it's checking in first. It's maybe talking to to a friend and going, I don't, I've been feeling a little bit off. Have you noticed anything about me? Mm-hmm. You know, obviously someone that 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 you feel kind of safe and you can trust. But also looking back and going, is there anything that, you know, I've, have I lost interest in things that I used to have interest in? Am I kind of avoiding things? Am I not sleeping enough? Am I sleeping too much? Am I eating too much, eating too little? So we look at those kind of, those basic things. Am I missing out on social opportunities, even if that is virtual right now, that I could be doing? Yeah. Um, so it's kind of checking in on ourselves. And if the answer is yes? Then then we then we look and see, well, what, what options are available to me locally? Okay. Um, and it, it, it doesn't always have to be private. You know, yes. I, I struggle with that, with the idea that yeah. in, in, that people even need to come to me privately and, and pay me for it when they should be getting it free. Yes, okay. That should be, but look, that's but, not the world that we live in right now. But um, in order to get it free, it's my understanding that you do have to go through your doctor, right? No, no. no. So for, for primary care psychology services where they're available in your country, for, in the part of the country that you're in, if, if it's available, they are self-referral. You can make a self-referral via that. You don't have to go over your GP. How would you find those people? Uh, just the hsc.ie okay. prim- primary care psychology services um, some will have waiting lists some won't be as lengthy some will so it, it's unfortunately locally you'll have to kind of check out and see what's, what's available. what they have other services will have um, other places will have kind of low cost or sliding scale kind of counselling available so they'll they and can, is that a question you'd ask or is that usually on their website that they do it's, sliding it, scale it should be on it but if it's not you can you can ask okay. what, what's available Um then in terms of kind of seeking someone kind of privately, what I'd really encourage people to do is to go through kind of the, the accredited bodies to make sure that the person's accredited. Okay. Do you want to tell us what those are? So, so on, PSI. on PSI, psychologicalsociety.ie, we'll have a find a psychologist section. So everyone on that will be kind of chartered level. So we can stand over kind of the level of qualifications that they have. Am I right in saying there's like hundreds of them? Um, like it's a long list. There is, but we've actually changed the website in the last couple of months. So okay. you can narrow it down based on county, based on type of psychologist, based on child or assessment or which type of therapy. Okay. So you can filter filter through to try and... Okay, great. Well, that'll help. In the same way that our colleagues in IACP, IACP. Our Association I. of yep. Counselors and Psychotherapists will also have a similar kind of facility that you okay. can go through and kind of filter out. So at least by going through those, those reputable bodies, you You're can be sure that those person are qualified to do the jobs that they're doing. Okay. Mark, thank you so much. Thank you. Um, we uh, <laughs> we covered a lot. I'll contact you privately <laughs> for some support. Um, no, it's been absolutely great, and um, we might have you back on in a couple of months to check in, see how we're all doing. Um, but I really appreciate your time and all of your knowledge. Anytime. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Basically. Um, I do really appreciate you listening to the podcast. It makes it all worthwhile, particularly when you get in touch and when you share or if you could make the effort to go and like it or subscribe to it on iTunes or Spotify, that really does make a difference. Um, Or there is now a new option in how you can support me. Uh, You can go to headstuffpodcast.com and become part of our community, which means that for five euro a month or however much you want to give, you can become part of the Headstuff community and get extra bonus content and support. You pick basically any of the podcasts on our network and you can support my podcast 100% or you can split it 
50-50 with another podcast and then we would get half of your subscription money or you could go and pick three and then we get 33% each. And it's a great way to get bonus content, obviously, to get to know the podcasters more and to become a more intimate member of the community. Um, I would really appreciate if you could do that. So if that's not something that you're able to do right now, just share, share the podcast with someone, send it to someone you think will find it interesting or let me know how you found it on Instagram. As ever, our graphic design is by Kahal O'Gara and our music is by Only Ruin and we are part of the Head Stuff Podcast Network and we film at the podcast studios. Uh, You don't really need to know where that is, but it's in Dublin. Anyway, thanks for listening. Bye. This show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network, a hub for the creative and the curious. Shows are produced in association with Headstuff and the Podcast Studios Dublin. Find out more or become a member at headstuffpodcasts.com.